The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. Plague Boy Pooty, P Nate, Garage Mahal, Dave on the knobs and dials. It's all popping off, including my nose. <laughs> Dave's on the knobs and dials behind plexiglass. <laughs> it's bad. Okay, so this is the only time we've ever worn masks. We're not yeah, actually doing that. Yeah, but uh, theoretically, yeah. So as you can tell with his voice, Chris is uh, sicker than uh, I, I got nothing, but he's sick. It's been a couple weeks. We haven't recorded for a while because Chris hasn't been around. And so last week, Andrew DiBartolo, uh, he was actually going to visit with me and Chris. He came down from, uh, from Kingston, and uh, we had a great time, but he missed Pootie. It's been a week and a bit since then, and we've been waiting for Chris to get better. You've been, like, crazy sick. I've known you for, what, like 14 years, and I've, you've never been this sick. I blame you. <laughs> what? Let me, let me I mean, explain. I, I've never been healthier. What? <laughs> this is the thing. So like, you shaved off your beard. Yep, that's true. Into a mustache. And so much of the power and authority that is resides <laughs> that keeps us healthy is in your beard. And you shaving it has weakened the aura of our church. And therefore, I've suffered so the consequences. So this is spiritual warfare that, yes. was, that was kept at bay by the hedge of protection that was my beard. That's, That's what correct. you're saying. That's, That's correct. correct. I, I think, nothing, I, I think you're medicated. That up on I think you're highly medicated right now. <laughs> I have nothing oh, to back man. that up. Uh, we are, uh, we're the rebels, and we wanted to record. So Chris joked that I don't normally let him say a whole lot in episodes anyway, so we won't have to talk much. But we'll see if we can get through this without Chris doing a coughing fit. But we just wanted to make sure. This is how dedicated Chris is to rebel content, you guys. He is willing to come out on the verge of death to record. Yeah, I am very dedicated. <laughs> also, I just needed to get out of my house. Yeah, you've been locked up for like three weeks. <laughs> like 10 days is a long time to not leave a home. And like, also in that case, I, I, I sleep on the couch when I'm sick because I need to sit up. And so like, I've literally been in the same room other than going <laughs> to the bathroom and showering for 10 days straight. Yeah. That does something to a man's psyche. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's prison. <clears throat> yeah. So, but you're out and about. You're experiencing the, the big wide world. And we appreciate that you're here recording, even though it's ill-advised from your medical professionals. Not that we generally prepare for episodes. But today, what we thought we would do is actually go back to a post that you posted. You posted this. There was like a week when you were really active on the Facebook thread, eh? I got a new phone. So... All of a sudden, I can go back on Facebook on my phone, which means I can start being active again on social media. Why, why weren't you active for the three weeks that you were sitting at home doing nothing? That's my question. <laughs> Just kidding. So you asked basically what topics do you guys want us to cover in future episodes? And so just because we wanted to get something out, we uh, a couple of our recording sessions got pushed back because you were sick. 
we just kind of wanted to rapid fire a few of these. Now, there's a, there's a few questions that came up. So if you asked us a, a question that we don't respond to today, it's partially just because we want to do a bigger episode on it that it'll take longer. But there's a few things that we can talk about here that I think are, are really, we can kind of rapid fire maybe a little bit. So it's almost like a Q&A episode. Some of these came through DMs. Some of these came through as replies to your question on the thread of, of what things you want to cover. So let's just go through a couple of these. You go, you go with this? All right, I'll, I'll start off. So Steve Dawson, great guy, uh, comes to the church uh, regularly, lives in uh, Woodstock. He asked us to cover the Lord's Supper. So real presence versus memorial view. How should it be administered? How often should it be observed? Who should hand out the emblems? Who should take the emblems? And also what elements ought to be used? So um, those are some good questions. Why don't we start with some of the easy, easy ones there. And I think the easiest one for us to answer there is how often should it be observed? I'm going to say every time you gather. So as often as you meet, as often. <laughs> that's what scripture says. Yeah. Yeah. My question on that is, is simply when did the church get it in their mind that we only had to do this once a month? Yeah. So like, it's so blatantly obvious in, in scripture that he, he commands us to do it all the time. So my question is at what point did we switch to a once a month or once a quarter mentality? And I know it's weird because we just switched to every week communion within what, like the last five years yep. at our church. And it was weird for the first month or so, but now everybody who comes, they're like, oh, it's, it's weird. And then two or three weeks after, they're like, we love it. So I'm, my question, I wonder is, when did it switch back? Obviously, we're supposed to do it all the time. So do you have any idea when it switched? Quite honestly, I don't know exactly historically when it switched. And I think certain denominations were quicker to, to switch it than others. A lot of it happened around the same time. So in the 80s, you get a lot of shifts in church culture. And I think some of these things are also tied together. So first of all, you get the age segregation of people, right? So suddenly you have children uh, given children's ministry, nursery went up to higher age ranges, children's ministry, junior high, senior high, 80s is the first time you start seeing the, the rise of the youth pastor, a specific pastor design. And this is really a response to the, the culture in the 70s which was shifting in the professional world where general tradesmen became specialized. So government regulations came that there needed to be specific regulations about people being certified as electricians and plumbers and all these various that I would just say it tightened up in that time frame. So it, in sort of response to the culture's specialization of tradesmen, the church began to specialize in terms of now there's a youth pastor and a worship pastor and a senior pastor and a, you know, seniors pastor, whatever the case is. So you started to see the basically the church just following the way of the culture. So at that same time, you start getting things like the move away from hymns to full bands and, and that sort of stuff in the North American church as well. A lot of uh, traditional churches shifted, started the shift from organs and that sort of stuff. So we're not saying all these shifts are bad, right? We use full bands at the church. I think uh, musical instruments and various musical instruments are not improper to use in worship at all. We see throughout the Psalms, you're, you, you're good at this because you answer this question all the time. We see in Psalm 150 that there are crashing cymbals and there are drums and throughout the, the Psalms, there are harps and lyres and all these various things, wood instruments, string instruments, drum instruments. So 
Anyway, I got off track. But the answer to that question is around that time as well, you started seeing time management and services, right? In the professionalism, you start seeing, well, now it's not just come and preach for however long. You started seeing people say multiple services started becoming a thing. Well, now the service goes from however long it lasts to what well, has to be an hour and a half because we have to get the second service in or whatever. So you started seeing a little bit more of a, a corporate mentality in churches. And so when that happened, the time management of services started being looking at the Lord's Supper as a bit more of a hindrance to our time. And so it started being observed more once a month. I have more questions that I want to hear your thoughts on. We will both would agree churches should be doing it every single week. Yes. What would you say to a pastor who is like, no, we're, we're going to keep doing it once a month? Would you say that's going against the commands of Scripture in their service? Yes. So they would be in sin? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, th- <laughs> I, I, I do. So I would even say, so, and this will get into some more of Steve Dawson's uh, questions about communion. Some people have maybe heard me say this. I think I've said it before. I don't know if I've said it publicly, so uh, maybe it's the first time some people are hearing it. I actually think that we should be using bread and wine for communion. I think our church particularly, I think we're being sinful by using grape juice as opposed to wine. And the reason I think that is because I think Scripture's clear, right? I think uh, Jesus commands us, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance, right? So that's every time every time you gather together corporately. That's what that's t- that in, in context, you break down what is he talking about? What is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 11? Uh, he's talking about the corporate gathering of the church. And so there's something about that Paul received as tradition, he says there, it's about, sorry, and it is to be observed every single time the church gathers. So, And then you get this, Jesus used bread and used wine. And so there's very simple instructions here, use bread and use wine. And I actually think, so you might ask the question, well, what does it really matter? These are symbols. And yes, I, I do believe they're symbols, although we'll get to that in just a second, because uh, Steve also asked about real presence versus spiritual presence. What I would say is that the symbols actually matter. The reason it's alcohol and not merely grape juice is because it's actually the yeast working within the alcohol itself. If you think about this, alcohol is actually sort of a, a living organism in the in the sense that there is there's yeast that's being that's eating up the sugar that's that's in there. It's it's changing. If you open a bottle of good wine today, it's different than if you opened it up in three weeks from now because the cultures inside the wine are actually changing and the alcohol is taking over. It's consuming the, the sugar that's in there. Sorry, the yeast actually eats up the sugars and that's what actually produces the, the alcohol. But that picture of the consuming and the overtaking is a picture of the kingdom of God. Just like leaven in the bread is a symbol of uh, like, right, the kingdom of God is like leaven that works its way through a loaf. So I think we are to use leavened bread. I think we are to use uh, not wafers, but leavened bread. And I think we are to use actual wine because that's what the symbols are to point to. I mean, if, if you're listening to this and you're in our church, I would just say that this is something that we actually started this conversation as elders uh, a little bit prior to COVID and then COVID being what it was and some of the ongoing difficulties that we have with the, the denomination and disassociation, all that kind of stuff right now. There's enough changes and battles that we're facing. So I don't necessarily feel so convicted that this ought to be a change right now. I think this is something that we can bring our people through. But this is a conversation that we need to once again have. The objections to using real alcohol, of course, it come come down to, you know, what about somebody who is an alcoholic who struggles with alcohol? I don't think it's sinful to offer alternatives for people, right? This is this is making an accommodation, I would say, for the weaker brother, right? To not cause them to stumble. But I would also say that the best thing that you can do for somebody who has struggled with alcohol, what actually 
what liberation from that addiction and that sin looks like is actually being able to master something that once mastered you. So that's sort of my take on, on the actual elements themselves and what we should be using. So he asked, who should administer the emblems? So there's a few things that you see in how it was done. First of all, Jesus was the one who broke the bread, prayed for the bread, and distributed it, right? So he was the rabbi, he was the teacher. I think it's appropriate for a pastor within the church to be the one who leads the communion prayer, right? So again, we're just trying to be as, as true to scripture as we can. And, and it's not like everything. We're not strict regulative principle people in our church. But what I would say is that Paul seems to make a big deal of this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says this is something that he received, right? So there are certain things, right, how long a person preaches, whether they transcript, you know, whether the sermon comes before or after the songs. I think you can have some scriptural reasons for why you do certain things. I, I love the liturgy at our church. We get it. I think it's biblical. But I think that there's some wiggle room there, right, for people to, of different convictions to figure out what, you know, how the service order gets put together. But it does seem like when Paul is talking about communion, he's talking about a tradition that was received. So I do think it's incumbent upon us to try to match what Jesus did as best we can. So Jesus prays after the bread is broken, and he prays again uh, for the cup. He gives thanks both times. So at, it, when we do communion, we give thanks two times, once for the bread, once for the cup. And again, Jesus is the one administering it, so we have a pastor or an elder, you know, pastor-elder interchangeable in the New Testament, who leads the communion. In terms of who hands it out, I'm not as strict on that stuff. I know in a, in a Presbyterian church, it would have to be the elders of a church, even just for practicality reasons, I think. You know, we've seen it where the husband is handing them out, but his wife is there with him. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that as long as, as she's there with him. It's not uh, uh, she's, she's there under his authority. In our church, we have elders or past elders or men of, I guess, elder caliber, if that's sure. the right word, who hand out the emblems, just depending on when people are there. Some people aren't there. We have a, a fairly I, large church now. And yeah, so, I always say, uh, well thought of disciples. Yeah, so, so there you go. Yeah. That's how I think of it. So I do think that, generally speaking, it should be men within the church, leaders within the church, and in a perfect world, I think it ought to be elders. But again, as I said, you might need more than just the elders distributing, especially if you're doing this every week, right? It's, it's one thing for a church who practices communion once a month to make sure that they have enough of their elders there to distribute. But when it's week in and week out, people go on vacation, all that kind of stuff. So that's what I would say. In terms of who takes communion, let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, I think actually you and I maybe differ a little bit on this, maybe not differ, but we have, I would say I there's different we, passion. I think, I think I'm a little more strict than I think you are. Yeah, I think you are. So I think that when 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine ourselves and not to take um, the, the supper in an unworthy manner, I think that some evangelicals take that to mean that if you examine yourself, that's a time when you are to look inward and see if there's any unrepentant sin there, confess your sin to the Lord and, and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they would equate the taking it in an unworthy manner as one of two things. Either it's somebody taking it who is steeped in unrepentant sin, or it's somebody who's taking it who actually doesn't believe in, in Jesus. I don't think that that's what the text is saying in either case. I think that the taking it in an unworthy manner, I think the context of 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul brings this up, he says, right, starting in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together,
together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead to his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? And so Paul is examining the divisions within the body, that not everybody's getting the same amount of food, that some people are getting drunk, that they're not waiting for one another, they're not doing it all together. And so notice when he says, examine yourselves, therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning what? The body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without what? Discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it's a discernment of the body of believers that are taking communion. When there's division, when there are factions, when they aren't of one accord, that's how you take it in an unworthy manner. So I would actually say that we ought to invite all those who believe in Christ to the table and we ought to say that those who have rejected Christ, right, who, who are actively rejecting Christ, ought not to come. But I don't think that um, we ought to be fencing the table in such a way that we don't allow those who we know perhaps aren't living a, a right life or anything like that. Now, there's church discipline, right? So people can be removed from the Lord's table. But I don't think that it's uh, the elder's job to police it in such a way that we would hinder people who want to come to come like it's an invitation it's an invitation to a, a a meal i think if you read the scriptures you can make a very good case for the reality that this was likely a very real meal this wasn't a communion time in a service where they're just handing out a piece of bread and a little thimble of wine that this was an actual meal and so to that end, well, who would participate in the church meal? I think everybody who is there would be like, if we have a potluck, we don't send the non-Christians away after, you know what I mean? And I get that it's not exactly the same thing. Don't I? <laughs> <laughs> so I look at that and I would just say, I think we invite all those who, who believe in Christ to come and then rejoice for all those who do come. And I think that, that um, so to answer one of Steve's other questions is what do we believe is happening there? We don't believe in real presence. In other words, we don't, we don't believe in the, uh, we're not transubstantiationists. That's a Catholic view. Martin Luther coined the term consubstantiation. So he talked about the, the presence of Christ being within the bread and the, the wine. So it doesn't actually become the blood and the body but his presence is there. And, and I do believe that there's actual grace that's administered through the eating and the sharing of the Lord's table because we are there communing with the Spirit. So it is a time for the Spirit of God to work within us and assure us that we belong to God. So, I don't know, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And this is one thing that we've talked about a lot as elders. Like, what about unbaptized children, right? We're a Baptist church. So what about unbaptized children? I think it bothers me far less than it bothers you. Well, in that, terms of I think that's where we differ. I just I just gate it a little harder with parents. I'm like, I encourage the parents to withhold that from their child until there is the faith that or the profession. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I would think you would just be like, let them come to the table. That's right. I would say let them come to the table. Just so you know, the only child in my household who takes communion is Quinn because she's the only one who's baptized. She's seven years old. She got baptized as soon as she turned seven, not because we were waiting for her to turn seven, but that's when she got baptized. I think Judah will likely get baptized, if not this year, then, then next, sometime in the next little while. He's five. But I don't think that parents ought to withhold baptism from their children. But I personally, in my home, I link baptism and communion, right? So Judah knows that he can't take communion until he's been baptized. And the reason I do that is simply because 
I think that that's a sign that he is a part of the covenant community. And because baptism is a sign that he's part of the covenant community, then, then he's welcome to the community table. Now, would I think differently of that if that was an actual meal that we shared as opposed to just a communion time? Probably. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't withhold the meal for my children. But I think that what communion has become in our modern services is, and, and Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11, that we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. And so what we are doing is we are in, I asked the question just this past Sunday during the communion homily, who is it that we're declaring that to? We're declaring it to the principalities and the powers of darkness. We are proclaiming victory in the death of Christ over those who are still enemies of the church who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. So all that to say, I think the, the best thing that church leaders ought to do is allow individual families, individual households, individual parents to figure out how to manage communion within their families. And I would even say there are times when we as a family, uh, Judah's often sitting with other people. He's sitting with uh, you, you, or he's sitting with Auntie, or he's sitting with Josh McKenna, or he's sitting with whoever. But all our kids know at communion, you come back to the family because th that's the time for our family to be sitting at the Lord's table. That's kind of how I view it. And I, I would just say you probably fence it a little bit harder in terms I, of... I, I just try to make... Like if somebody asks me, I make what you're already doing the rule. Yeah. As opposed to like functionally... I never go up and correct any fathers who yeah, let their kids I, take. I've seen you knock any juice like, out of kids. Like, <laughs> take, put that red down. Son. Yeah. No, but like, but functionally, that's how I would encourage people to do it. Yeah. Your kids are welcome to participate once they've been baptized. But like, we don't also wait till like an age of majority for baptism. Like we would baptize right. a five-year-old, a three-year-old, like as soon as they can do the things that we would say are evidence of the spirit in them, then we would baptize them. So um, hopefully that answered your question, Dawson. So it was good. Well, we can leave that one there. You sound like your voice is doing all right. So I'll let you start with this one. And then when voice wigs out on you, I'll, I'll pick it up since I talked more last time. So here's a question from uh, Lorna Brown. Uh, she asked, uh, she's actually a UK listener, which is awesome. I don't know if she's connected with Joe Boot over there. He's living uh, by London. Lorna Brown asks, how about discussing evangelism? Is it more than just getting an individual to convert to their ticket to heaven? Is the church's idea about how to evangelize significantly flawed? How are everyday Christians supposed to share their faith in their sphere of influence? I mean, this is in our wheelhouse. We love talking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first off, I, I would just say like any Christian or any church who doesn't think that they're an evangelist or like on mission for evangelism is just simply an imposter. That's the Charles Spurgeon quote, right? Yeah. Every Christian is either a missionary or they're an imposter. Yeah. We have this weird mindset in our in our North American culture that evangelism is something we do and it's something that we certain people are called to when it's like no no this is just the mission of the church period yep. we build the kingdom through the conversion of, of the saints pushing back the principalities and the worldviews and the primary method of that is the is the atonement of sinners yep. so That's evangelism right. is simply the means to do what we're our church's mission is which is to build the kingdom so the question really isn't what do we do for evangelism? Like everything we're doing, how does evangelism fit in that? In that, So like it's it needs to become normalized in your church's DNA and culture. Everything we're doing is because of the mission. You yep. know what I mean? So for instance, at our church, like the normative practice would be to obviously share the gospel with your friends, your families, your coworkers. We do that and we train people how to have those conversations, obviously. But everything our church is doing is to do that in our on a cultural level, too. We have a market to feed the poor. Why? So that we can tell them, why are we doing this for you? Well, we're doing this for you because Christ loved us first. And so, therefore, right. we're doing this. We're out teaching people how to live godly lives, how to house, have households that are submitted to King Jesus because that 
proclaims the good news to the to our neighbors, to our culture around us. So everything we do is evangelism. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think wrapped up in her question was sort of, is it is it more than just to get an individual to convert to and get their ticket to heaven? I would say yes. I think one of the flaws, so, so then that leads into our <coughs> next question, is the church's idea about how to evangelize significantly flawed. And I, I, I do think it is. I think this comes from the, the sort of Billy Graham crusade yeah, theology of like, your whole job is to get somebody to say a sinner's prayer, right? I saw this with somebody in our church the other day talking about their kid who asked Jesus into their heart. And, and that's a beautiful thing. We shouldn't knock that. You don't want to like, you know, when somebody in your church family has one of their kids ask Jesus into their heart, you don't jump on there and say, well, actually, that's a, a very Gnostic sort of, yeah. Not in the- yeah, it's not a time to do that. It's, it's, it's time to rejoice. And I think that there is actually, especially with children, I actually do think that they, like having them pray a prayer that sort of solidifies the conversation that you you just had and their pledge of allegiance to the, to the king. I actually think that that's a good tool for us to use. But I think we what we have to remember is that uh, salvation isn't transactional in the sense that if you do this thing, then you get this. And I would just say, so in the more charismatic circles of the church, you get this easy believism, right? Just say this prayer, say this thing, you know, put your hand up, come up to the front, whatever, and then you're in. But I think sometimes in reform circles, we can actually add a different sort of caveat, and that is a theological understanding test where it's just like, oh, well, unless you understand penal substitutionary atonement or unless you understand the five points of Calvinism or something, it's like, well, you don't really understand the gospel. Well, theological understanding is also not uh, required for salvation, right? What happens at salvation is, this is 2 Corinthians 4, the God who said, let there be light, shines gospel light into a heart. This is God speaking and giving you a new heart, replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It's a moment of regeneration we would say that we believe that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration is what gives you the ability to believe. But we don't even have to get into the weeds on that to talk about how flawed the church's view of, of this is. It's not saying a sinner's prayer. And, and, and I would just simply say, show me in any, any of the gospel accounts or in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles, either a, an instance or an instruction to lead somebody in the sinner's prayer. It's just not there. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. None of the disciples, I often ask people, when did the disciples get saved? Right. And, and, and you can have different answers to that, right? Is it, is it, you know, you are the Christ. It's not a living God. Is it the first time they worshiped him after he stilled the wind and the waves? Is it like, um, was it after the resurrection? Was it when he breathed on them after the resurrection, they received the Holy Spirit? Like, when is it? Well, I, I think you're, what you're looking at, I think the scriptures don't actually give us these moments of conversion when, even with Paul, right? So he, he sees the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's given these scales. He goes in and finds Annas in Acts, and uh, the scales come off his eyes and he can see again. But there was several days in there where he was praying and he listened, he heeded the, the instructions of the Lord to go into the city and look for this guy. So again, when did Paul get saved? So we, we have these miraculous, even in, in the midst of these miraculous stories, we don't have this like moment where somebody prayed a prayer and then they were in. So all that to say, I think we have to be much more bold in saying that true regeneration bears fruit. So I think sometimes as reform folks, we get really squirrely when we start saying that good works or fruit are necessary for salvation. They're not necessary for salvation, but true salvation is always accompanied by good works, by fruit. This is why James can say faith without works is dead, right? Yeah, you're not saved from works, but you're saved to good works. That's exactly right. So I say that simply to say we ought to evangelize 
evangelism and discipleship always go together. And the reason they always go together is because however that switch of trust, uh, there's a guy in our church, Don Brooks, that's how he, he calls it a transfer of trust from trusting yourself to trusting Christ, right? Whatever your language is going to be. Pledging allegiance is my newest favorite one because the word pistis, which we translate as faith in the New Testament, was, was a Roman word about pledging allegiance to the, to the empire. <laughs> I think that uh, however it is that you pledge allegiance, the moment somebody bends the knee to King Jesus, declares themselves a sinner in need of a savior, believes the gospel and puts faith in Christ, they get put on the track to discipleship. And because it's baptize them and what? Baptism is the pledge of allegiance. That's the like public declaration. This is me. This is why baptism is so necessary, by the way. It's not not necessary for salvation, but that is why. So this person's asking, well, sinner's prayer, whatever. No, no, get them baptized. When you get baptized, that is your chance, public declaration, that's your testimony, that's your pledge of allegiance to the king, baptized into a body, right? Saying, I'm not doing this independently, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into the body of believers, I'm, I'm now part of something, a new family. And then what? Taught obedience, right? So baptize them and teach them obedience. So yes, I do think it's a truncated view of the gospel when we start saying it's just about a, saying a sinner's prayer and, and we get our ticket to heaven. It's way more than that. It's, it's putting somebody on a track to evangelism and then their entire life becomes learning the ways of Christ, what it means to be obedient to the king. Yeah, I think there's also a big danger of like trying to view evangelism in like a numbers game, a pragmatism, which mm -hmm. is like, yeah, yeah. which is a I think what you're saying kind of about the Billy Graham crusade of like when, when even when we say bear fruit, we don't mean you're going to lead 50 people to Christ. You might be the most faithful preacher of all time and your church dwindles. It's possible. God is the one who brings and God is the one who saves. So what we're saying bearing fruit is, is cultivating the fruits of the spirit in, in somebody's life. So how do you tell when somebody's truly been saved? Well, they're, they're saved to good works. So we start seeing their behaviors change, but we also see the fruit of their spirit working in them, their patience grows, their gentleness grows, their kindness grows, their faith, their trust, all those things grow in them. And so it's it's very important to remember that we're not a numbers game. People's like, when we go out and evangelize on the streets, we never talk about like, oh, our ministry is not successful because we've only seen one or two people come to Christ in the last couple of years. It's like, right. no, no, because the success of that is the discipleship we're doing together when yeah. we're out there. But it's also obedience. Obedience. We're being faithful. God is the one who who redeems. He calls sinners to himself. We are the means. We're the method that he sometimes uses. Yeah, uh, and to do that. So, and um, we're out there. And so, like, read your question again. I just want to make sure we've we've answered it all. Discussing evangelism is it more than just getting an individual to convert and get their ticket to heaven? We've talked about that. Yeah. Is the church's idea about how to evangelize significantly flawed? I think we talked about that. How are everyday Christians supposed to share their faith in their spheres of influence? Yeah. And and you touched on that, but yeah. but I think we'll, I think we'll bring let's let's bring Corey on. Corey is our resident expert in evangelism yeah, yeah. to talk yeah. about that last point. Yep. I will bump up to the the church's view of evangelism and flawed. Your church's view of evangelism is flawed if they think that it's the pastor's job yes, there to, you do, go. to do yeah. that thing. So one of the things that I think we need to get all churches to think about is that a pastor's job and an elder's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, what's the work of the ministry? Is to build the kingdom That's right. and to preach the good news. So your church is failing in evangelism if the mentality is invite your friends out to our service and they'll get saved here because they're going to hear Pastor Steve or whoever give a great gospel presentation. No, no. Yeah. You should be preaching the gospel, bringing them out so they can experience the covenant family and the benefits of, of being in, right. that, in the house. Because it could be it could be that that his that, that pastor's sermon 
is what God uses to save them. But it also could just be the fellowship and the community that you experience and people realize that's the domino that needs to tip that this is what they're, they've been missing and God uses the family to be the thing that yeah, saves them. There's totally. tons of things. Yeah. So great question, Lorna. Yeah, let's bring Corey on and we'll, we'll do a whole episode on that one. Gregory Soiler asks us to comment on the Asbury Revival. So anybody who's not aware, it's called the Asbury Revival, but down in the school there, I actually, I, I'm bad at this. So here we are, March, what's today, the 23rd or something like that. I don't know if it's still going on. I think it has wrapped up now, but yeah. Um, so there was this like several week long worship service, prayer, worship, early morning, late night, you know. So here's what I would say. I would say the best person that I thought wait, who weighing in on this was actually a friend of our show, Steve Richardson. He has a blog post called canadarevival.blogspot.com. And he has a blog post on, I mean, I would say one of Steve's areas of passion is revival. Anybody who kind of wants to just get their head screwed on straight theologically about revival, I would say read Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. Really, really important book in understanding the difference between a genuine work of God and sort of the charismatic revivalism that that sprung up as a result of some of the genuine works of God. If you're listening to this and you're not even quite sure what revival is, Richard Owen Roberts has a really good definition of revival. He just says it's an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. So very simple, but um, the idea there is just God pours his spirit out in a unique and extraordinary way. And however that manifests itself through conversion, through healing, through renewed sanctification, whatever the case is. But in terms of the Asbury revival, I would say... Number one, there's plenty of reason for caution when it comes to the Asbury Revival. And I'll just list a few. I don't know if you've uh, looked into this much, and maybe you can add a couple. I've watched YouTube. Todd Bentley, who was part of the Lakeland Revival several years ago, which I would say was not a genuine work of the, of the Spirit. That's going back probably, what, 12 years, the Lakeland Revival thing with Todd Bentley? I was going to say 10. So yeah. Sure. yeah, Todd Bentley's a, I would say he's a charlatan. I would say he's a wicked man. And the fact that he showed up at the Asbury Revival, endorsing it, saying that it was, you know, genuine, doesn't bode well for it. But I also know that you can't stop people from showing up. And I was encouraged that they didn't give him a microphone. That's a good thing. I would say when you look at the code of conduct and the things that the school holds to there, they're very soft on LGBT stuff. They're very soft on women pastors and, and some things that we would say are pretty orthodox. Just the way in which some of the female students were leading the services at Asbury would give me great pause because I think scripture is incredibly clear about the office of pastor, elder, overseer, which includes preaching. And it's not like there was a lot of preaching there, but there's a pretty fine line, right? Like when you're getting up and you're reading scripture and you're encouraging people, I mean, there's a very fine line between when that's teaching and not. We even have, we have, we have women, all of our worship leaders, uh, there's each team leader at our church is led by a man, but there are women with, you know, who lead songs and all that kind of stuff. And they've even read scripture at times and they'll even like the women in our church, I think are very good at this. They understand they're, I think they're taught well on this and they're like, you know, is it, is it okay if I read this? And we, we would say to them, well, reading it, absolutely. You know, commenting on it, you know, explaining it, applying it, no. 
there was a pause in my spirit as I was watching and seeing some of the, the female students getting up, reading scripture, and doing some work of what I would call exhortation and even teaching or application of, of God's word. So that gave me pause. The other thing I would say is that from my perspective, and I haven't, I haven't spent a great deal of time watching Asbury revival stuff, Every revival, and I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time studying the Welsh revivals, the Great Awakenings, and, and some of these things, and I would just say all of them seem like the thing that drives revival forward is repentance. It's conviction of sin. What I'm seeing eerily, and, and I've talked to some people who say this isn't the case, so I'm, I'm willing to be corrected on this because it's not like I've watched hours of video or anything— but it seems like there's a lot of talk about God's love. There's a lot of talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. There seems to be a genuine desire for prayer and worship, which I think is a good thing. But it seems as though there isn't a whole lot of emphasis on repentance and conviction of sin, which would be an aberration from the genuine works of God that we see in the past. That's kind of where I was going to land the plane on, on my thoughts on the Asbury Revival. Let me just very quickly say, like, I haven't gone. I'm not going to go. Yeah. Time will tell if this is legit or if this isn't legit. My hope and my prayer is that people have found Christ and have come to saving faith in whatever is happening down there. My skepticism is exactly what you just articulated. When I've watched some of the videos, read some of the comments on people who have been there, the thing that seems very absent is the unrepentant sinner repenting, basically. Yeah. It seems like it's a worship service that's been going on for a long time, and that's good. That's I have no problems with people worshiping the living God, but it doesn't seem like there's been a call to repentance. And whenever I see through Scripture, whenever I think of revivals in Scripture, I think of Nineveh. I think of after Pentecost when Peter preached. What was the, the driving force in both of those things? Repent, you wicked people, basically. You yeah. kill Jesus, repent, yeah. and repent from... And, what do we see is we see a population worship, yes, but first and foremost fall on their knees in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and, and mourning their sin. And that's what I don't see in the U.S. right now in that in that idea. And then so with that, it was just it was just interesting that the Asbury revival was coming out at the time that I was I was actually doing a study about Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards during that time. And what was that? Well, that was the Great Awakening. That yeah. was and. Edwards himself, who was, I wouldn't say the leading guy, but probably the most, one of the most leading guys at the time in the revivals that happened in, um, in the U.S. at that period of time. And he was super skeptical yeah. about anything that was driven completely by emotion worship to the point where he was almost mourning the fact that his revivals seemed to be driven more by emotion than repentance. And he would repeatedly try to bring that back in. And now he was go for your emotions. That's a good thing, but it needs to be tied to emotion of like love for God, repentance of sin, Yeah, which is why like Whitfield and him got along fabulously, but didn't do a lot of ministry together together. Yeah. And it's because of like very different me me Methodology. uh, methodologies. As I was reading that, like watching what's happening in Asbury didn't seem the same as what was happening in what I was reading about what was happening in Edward's day in terms of the just the way that people were coming about salvation. Now, there's a difference between biblical literacy in the 1700s versus today. So like there was a lot more theology informed on the the regular person, so to speak, yep. um, back then. But it just didn't seem like the same. And to me, God doesn't change, right? So it's, he's going to use the same methods. It might look different in our in our culture. And then when I was looking into it, I saw it seemed a little too scripted and scheduled for me. Hmm. I'm in worship. I'll tell you what's hard to do is 
worship for 24 hours in a row without having planned out what we're doing for 24 hours. And so like, I'm just thinking about like the fact that they were able to keep that going for weeks on end with who was bringing food. And I'm like, I understand you can do a lot of that stuff on fly, but it, it felt very kind of unauthentic to start. Again, I, I don't want to just pour fire on the whole thing. You might love it. You might be listening to this and went and thought it was great. Observationally, I would say, I view this as very similar to what I would view Elevation. I'm not in the camp where I think every single person at Elevation is a heretic. I think there's a lot of people who need good teaching and they're not getting it. Yep. But I think there are genuine people who have come to Christ through the ministry of that church because sometimes God uses a crooked stick to strike a straight row. And I kind of view Asbury as the same idea of like, I think there are people being saved through what's happening in spite of what's happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. In the uh, the blog post by Steve Richardson that I told you to go and listen to, he concludes with, I think, a really kind of tempered view. And he just says, time will tell whether the Asbury revival is a genuine work of God. Based on what I've seen and heard from a distance, I think I can say there's good reasons both for caution and for thankfulness. For myself, I cannot help but feel convicted by what seems to be a genuine appetite for prayer and worship. The fact that they are found each day early at prayer and long at prayer should come as something as a rebuke to all of us. Beyond that, I am happy to leave the whole matter with God. If this work is genuinely of the Lord, we will soon know it by its fruits. And I do think that the reason I say that I think that that's such a good kind of sober-minded conclusion is just that one of the things that Asbury ought to teach us is that we ought to be okay with a wait-and-see kind of mentality, right? If we were living even just several decades ago, uh, none of us would know what was going on there, right? Because there wasn't internet, there wasn't videos immediately uploaded to YouTube, there weren't streaming services and all that kind of stuff. Nowadays, something happens and the entire internet has an opinion on it very, very quickly. I think as Christians, we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. Even when it came to the trucker convoy, I thought that it was good and I was thankful for it. But before I really came out and publicly endorsed what was going on there, Corey McKenna, one of our elders, and I went up to Ottawa to see it for myself because I wanted to, to see it. I wanted to know. And so I, I do think that there is wisdom in not being, trying to be the first person to comment on things that are going on, especially when uh, it's of a spiritual matter and, and Christ does tell us to examine the fruits of things to see whether or not uh, they bear good fruit. So that's what I would say. I think there's there's plenty of reasons for us to be cautious. We should allow people's appetite for prayer and worship to convict us who don't have an appetite for such things. But I would also just say, let's wait and see. Let's be charitable. That actually reminds me of a question that we didn't get, but is blowing up at least my social media right now. And that's the whole Gary DeMar stuff. And <laughs> I, I was wondering I, if you were going to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been so blessed and helped by Gary over the years. Um, his books and his videos and, and his teaching on eschatology and biblical prophecy has been so very, very helpful. So I'm not going to comment on on it because I haven't listened to his own words. I've only seen what people are posting about it. So I want to do that. I need to do that. That's uh, something that I just need to be diligent and go and, and listen to what he actually said that sparked the controversy. I would say that full preterism is a problem. I, I, I don't think Orthodox Christians can deny that there's going to be a, a physical return of Christ and a physical bodily resurrection of the dead. But I don't know if exactly what Gary said about that stuff. I'm not going to comment on that. What I will comment on is that we should be very, very slow to throw the label of heretic at somebody who's been faithful for years, right? So you look at a guy like Gary, Uncle Gary has been a faithful Bible teacher for 30 years. And so we ought to weigh what he's saying. Like, obviously, Chris and I have had a very different response to COVID than some of the guys that we love, like a John Piper, right? John Piper had a very different 
response to COVID. And, and I would say that there are a lot, there's a lot to be concerned about in some of the way in which John Piper has interpreted the culture in the last five years, 10 years maybe. But he's been such a tremendous blessing with 50 years of, of faithful pastoral ministry that we ought to be very, very slow to throw stones. You know what I mean? And I think Gary's earned that right as well. So before before we start blowing up the internet with calls for heresy and, and stoning, we ought to just give people some credit who've earned that credit. That's maybe something that we'll revisit on a later episode when I've had some a uh, chance to kind of delve into some of what he has said and, and kind of weigh his words on their own merits. Christians can't partake in cancel culture. One of the things I've actually noticed creeping into, and I would say this is a rebuke on our camp, not the other camp. Like yep. when I say our camp, I mean kind of the more conservative Christians, basically. Yep, there you go. We are very skeptical and we're very quick to like cut ties with everybody who's not right on board with everything we're on board with. So like John Piper is now, don't bring him up. Don't talk about David Platt. Don't talk about Matt Chandler. I'm just throwing out names of guys who yep. in the last five We've years have kind of get been, canceled from our side. Exactly, yep. right? So like even if somebody says one thing, and like, don't get me wrong, some of the stuff they said, I, I disagree with. But that doesn't take their whole ministry and throw them away. Jesus uses this. There's that story in the, uh, I think it's Matthew 18. I can't remember the verse. Where James and John come and they're like, this guy's casting out demons. And he's, yeah. and like, and they're just like. And we like, told them to stop it. And we, exactly. Not with us. And James <laughs> is like, stop it. And Jesus is like, well, don't tell them to do that because anybody who's doing stuff. Yeah, there's only two sides. Exactly. So if they're fighting the bad guys, then exactly. If they're with us, then they can't be against us, right? And I think sometimes we are very quick to pick fights with our friends. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. even if they're not like people you're going to go to church with, like I think of Sproul and MacArthur, two kind of like patriarchs of the faith in in North America over the last thirty years. They somehow were able to be good friends. Yeah, disagreed on baptism. Disagreed on eschatology, eschatology disagreed on God's law, <laughs> disagreed on, yeah, all like, that. And somehow we're able to, to understand that they were both useful for the kingdom. Right. And it's like, okay, like we're trending in the, in the way where we would say you have to pick a side and that person becomes your mini pope and then everybody else is not your thing. And I think we, I think evangelicals, we need to get out of that habit. Now you've heard me name people from the, from yeah. this thing where I'm like, no, there's a time where we turn. For sure. and, we, and we call out the Bruxy Caveys, we call out the Stephen Furtick's or whatever, um, because they're preaching a different gospel. And I yeah. think that's the key is like when... And we can still call out false teaching Absolutely. without calling like somebody a heretic, some, right? Exactly. So like we often will criticize some of John MacArthur's theology, but we can still honor the man and point out his misgivings. I think actually Paul learned this lesson, right? Like he sort of was really harsh and sent John Mark home from a missionary journey early. But you see later in his life that his heart was sort of softened towards John Mark, right? In his, one of his last letters, he says to Timothy, you know, send me John Mark. I want him to visit me. He's useful to me in my ministry. Like, I think he understood as, as God shaved the harsh edges off of Paul, the recognition that he needed to be a bit more. And, and I'm going to use this word and people are going to jump on me for it, but I'll say a bit more ecumenical. And what I don't mean by that is playing nice and partnering with heretics. But what I do think is that it's just the recognition that everybody is a work in progress. Every Christian who truly believes has a spirit of truth within them that ought to be leading them to truth. And so we ought to have a little bit more patience and grace with one another while the spirit of truth is leading us to truth together. And I do think that there are lines, right? There are lines when, we, I mean, we, we started this episode talking about how clear it is in Scripture talking that women shouldn't be pastors. 
We're not going to do a joint conference with a, uh, a church that has a lady pastor because we don't believe that that's a thing. So there are lines that need to be drawn in the sand, but I think we ought to be careful that we aren't, I guess, rejecting the help of co-belligerents because this is a big battle. And I think that uh, there's a lot of wisdom in, in the passage you were talking about when Jesus says like, hey, like they're fighting the bad guys. Let them fight bad guys. Amen. So anyway, well, that's, that's a good enough episode. Eh? Questions? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> that was almost an hour jeepers. Okay. We'll maybe throw something else out. We have a few more questions that we didn't get to that maybe we'll do in future episodes, but look at that. You got through almost an hour of podcasting it without dying, which is good. That is good. Yeah. Improvement. Hopefully we'll see you next week. And Chris <laughs> won't be so near death's door. <laughs> <laughs> Lord willing. All right. See ya. Peace.